and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 98, and it's also the first one in September. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's a bit of a shorter podcast than usual this week, and hopefully I didn't just hear cheering. And there are a couple of reasons for it being shorter than usual, and one is that it was a short work week, because there was a holiday yesterday in England. I know, I live in Scotland, and some of the holidays are different, but our head office is in England, so when they get a day off, so do I. And for a change, because the weather was fine, I actually used the day off and went walking. Although perhaps I shouldn't have, as I managed to fall. I'm generally pretty accident-prone anyway, but when I spotted what would be a great photo opportunity, I scrambled down some rocks and took the photo. On the way back up, I managed to jam my foot between two rocks, so while the rest of my body was moving, my left leg wasn't. Fortunately, I bounced up right away, but of course it's the day after when you see all the bruises and feel sore but all okay. Except reaching for the tea bags in the cupboard this morning when my shoulder said, I don't think so. On a similar note, okay cannot be said of my wife's car as her engine blew on the highway. We also have a sick child at home with a heavy cold and problems with the water pipes. Fantastic start to September and we're only two days in. The other reason for the shorter show than usual is that one of the interviews that I had planned didn't happen. No names mentioned. But rather than focus on who isn't on the podcast this week, let's focus on who is. We have an interview with Conagen's VP of Innovation, Dr. Casey Lipmeyer, and we also talk to Joan Bombardo, Managing Director of Ornua Ingredients Europe. And we also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. Some other interesting news this week relates to the podcast. It's now also available on Spotify and all kinds of other podcast platforms, some of which I've never heard of, but we're on them. So there's even less excuse to not listen now. If you head over to Spotify, just do a search for Dairy Reporter and you can listen to all 98 episodes in glorious stereo, with or without Dobbly, if you're a fan of Spinal Tap. If you're a musician, you definitely appreciate that movie, and I can say I've had plenty of Spinal Tap moments on stage myself. As for the podcast, I wouldn't recommend listening to all 98 back-to-back. Maybe wait till we hit 100. It's actually a very rock and roll show this week because I'm going to run down the top 20 for you. And by that, I don't mean the biggest selling albums of the week. I mean the top 20 dairy companies in the world, according to the annual report put out by Rabobank. And there's even some rock and roll in the news as well in a moment. And so on to this week's news. Swiss dairy company Emmy published its financials. A new Lactalie drying tower in France is set to become operational. Stora Enso is going to build a pilot plant for bio-based packaging foam. DMK has appointed a COO for its baby food business unit. And Halo Top launched some new plant-based products. Honduran company Lactosa expanded the range of its Sula dairy brand in the U.S. and Dairy Farmers of America has set a greenhouse gas reduction target. DOB Equity made another investment in a Tanzanian dairy processor and Food Union Group went through some of what it says will be the latest ice cream trends. 
In Essex in the UK, Kent Foods Warehouse was burned down at the weekend. San Bernardo Ice Cream in Florida has launched some plant-based alternatives. And Lewis Road Creamery in New Zealand launched milk with collagen. Good Karma Foods has bought the company back from Dean Foods in the US. And now we get to the rock and roll bit. Danzeisen Dairy in Arizona has teamed up with Alice Cooper to launch a chocolate milk. I would never have thought we'd have Alice Cooper mentioned on the Dairy Dialogue. And leading us into the top 20 dairy companies, Ely has published its second quarter results this week. And so we come to the Rabobank top 20 dairy companies based on sales turnover. In typical music chart fashion, we will do the rundown in reverse order. I should have had some rock music playing in the background, but I don't. So here we go. No change at number 20 for Müller from Germany. Also hanging on to its 19th spot from last time is Schreiber Foods from the US. Sliding down 4 at 18 is Kraft Heinz, and up 1 at 17 is Agropur from Canada. A new entry at number 16 is the Gujarat Cooperative Milk Marketing Federation, which produces the Amul brand in India. And rising two places to number 15 is Savencia from France. Up 1 at 14, and also from France, is Sodial. Up 3 at 13 is Japan's Meiji, and a non-mover at 12 is Unilever. Up to at 11 is DMK from Germany, and that takes us into the top 10. Are you excited yet? At 10, down one from last year is another Canadian company, Saputo. Also dropping, this time two places, to number 9 is Arla Foods. Up two at 8 is China's Meng Yu, and also dropping two places to number 7 is the Dutch dairy cooperative Friesland Campina. It's another cooperative at 6, and it's also a drop of two places for New Zealand's Fonterra. Breaking into the top five with a jump of three places is Ili from China. Down one at four is Danone. And it's another big leap forward at three, up three places for Dairy Farmers of America. No change at number two for Lactali, which means that still number one is Swiss headquartered Nestle. And that's that done for another year. For a moment, I thought about doing my own top 10 dairy chart with songs like at number 10, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Dairy, and Peter Frampton at 9 with Show Me the Way, but then I thought better of it, especially once I'd come up with I Got Rhythm by Mozzarella Fitzgerald. And so that's it for the news, or at least some of it, because you can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get on with the most important part of the show, and that's our guests. First up to the plate this week is Conagen's VP of Innovation, Dr. Casey Lipmeyer, who gives us some details about the company and its most recent product, a non-GMO human milk oligosaccharide. All right, so Conagen, uh, we're a synthetic biology company. We're about 10 years old by now, but we're very rapidly growing. We've been doubling our headcount every single year for about the past five years or so. We're up to about 80 people at our facility in Bedford, Massachusetts. And we focus primarily on molecules that are important for markets, nutrition, food ingredients, flavors and fragrances, and non-caloric sweeteners or sugar reduction agents. So that's our core. We have a couple of growth platforms as well around pharmaceuticals, personal care, and perfumes and cosmetics, as well as specialty green chemicals. So that's, that's what we do. We're a very science-driven company, and we're focused primarily on what we can make. We're privately owned, and uh, through that private ownership, we're part of a larger family of companies. 
that take on the responsibility of manufacturing these products at world scale, as well as marketing and, and selling them. And so through that affiliate network, we can also claim that we're vertically integrated, which is uh, something that we think differentiates us from our, a lot of our competitors. And we're genuinely very product focused, even though we're driven primarily by science in the front end. Recently, uh, with our food ingredients line, we've taken a greater focus on infant formula ingredients. Infant formula, as you know, is a necessary product for a lot of mothers. Breast milk is generally considered best, but for mothers that can't breastfeed, infant formula is a good option. And the goal, and it has been this goal for a long time, is to make infant formula as much like breast milk as is humanly possible. It's never going to be just like infant formula, but we'd like to make it as much like breast milk as is possible. And part of that is our recent non-GMO two-prime fucosal lactose. This is uh, abbreviated as 2-FL, and I'll keep referring it to that way the rest of this conversation. But this is an important human milk oligosaccharide, which acts as a prebiotic in the infant gut and supports the development of a very healthy infant gut microbiome and suppresses any potential pathogens that might emerge in the infant gut. Obviously, the, the formula market is kind of big in Asia. Is this something that's specifically tailored to Asia, or is it something that you sell around the world? Oh, no. Our ambitions for our launches are global. We're speaking to all the infant formula companies are all around the world, and we plan launches in every country where infant formula is sold. So uh, could you give me a bit more detail on the new product and how it was developed? Yeah. So there are infant formulas today that do have uh, 2FL that are already in them. The uh, 2FL product is coming from generally a fermentation process. We also have a fermentation process that we had worked on for that, but we found that we could use some of our very proprietary science around what's called a bioconversion technology to make it in a different way that allows, again, this non-GMO label and therefore broader adoption into a wider range of infant formulas. There are a number of infant formula brands that do have that non-GMO claim on them. And you know, we just want to be able to provide the 2FL to as many mothers as possible. And prior versions of 2FL made by other companies haven't been able to get into those kinds of formulas. So that was our, I mean, that was our motivation was to, you know, find a differentiator around that. But we also, you know, just, again, we want to make babies healthier. And for that reason, we're thinking about more than just 2FL too. I might mention that we also make a product called lactoferrin. There's a bovine lactoferrin that's found currently in some infant formulas. We have made a human version of that. Uh, we still make it by fermentation, so it's not exactly the same as what you would get from breast milk, but it's much closer than bovine lactoferrin. And therefore, in the same vein, we think that we can offer a better product. And I, and I want to be clear, bovine lactoferrin has definitely improved infant formula, um, and it's, it's an important nutrient, but we're always looking to make things better. I was interested in hearing that the production process kind of resembles cheese. Could you uh, could you fill me in on how, how that kind of works? Yeah, yeah, happily. So I already invoked our bioconversion process. And what that means is that instead of using cells that are fermented, microbes that are fermented to produce some other product like 2FL, what we do instead is we make enzymes. So there's no living thing in our bioreactors. There's no fermentation process that's creating carbon dioxide like we'd have if you were brewing beer or something. Uh, it's just an enzymatic process that takes the precursors, which are just simple little sugars, and those enzymes just directly convert them into 2FL. In cheesemaking, there's a similar process. You add enzymes called rennet to milk 
to curdle the milk and create the cheese product. And so in that way, that's the parallel that I'm drawing. It's like cheese making and the fact that we're not using, I mean, you can use live organisms in making cheese, but it's primarily about the enzymes. And what's the significance of this latest product for your company and also for your customers? Because it's not the only 2FL on the market. How does it differentiate from others? Yeah. Well, we're the only non-GMO 2FL offering currently. We also have the world scale production capability. And so there are other smaller companies that have made 2FL processes. But again, they're all either a GM-based process or they're not scalable or there's some other problem with them. So we have the full package. We have the non-GMO 2FL technology. We're scaling it up. We're uh, going through the regulatory process right now. And we've created a lot of excitement in the industry among our customers. Does this have applications beyond simply infant formula? Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion in the literature around how these breast milk, human milk oligosaccharides can actually be used for adult health as well. It's a prebiotic for infants, but it can serve that same role for humans as well. I should also note that you know, 2FL is not the only human milk oligosaccharide. There's about 150 of these things. And that creates a very large stable of potential products that we could adapt our same process for and you know, create a whole new product line of healthy solutions, not only for prebiotics, but for all the other activities that are associated with human milk oligosaccharides, which include things like better brain development for infants and possibly better brain health for older populations. They include certain disease fighting capability. Some of these act as decoys against viruses like influenza, for instance, and prevents infections. Uh, there are immune signaling events that some of these human milk oligosaccharides are important for, specifically for the proper development of the infant immune system and potentially prevention of allergies. And in adults, it might actually mitigate inflammatory responses, unwarranted inflammatory responses. So there's still a lot of research that needs to be done around that area, especially for the adult applications, but there's also a lot of promise. And as far as the adult applications goes, I mean, obviously for infants, we're talking about formula. Is this something that could be utilized in different kinds of products like drinks or bars? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this whole body of follow-on formulas, as they call them, and also follow-on foods, you know, that are, you know, like baby foods, but other things that weaning infants would be eating. And so, yeah, these can be added into all of those lines as well. And, and are you constantly, I assume, working on other kinds of ingredients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are at our core uh, an ingredients manufacturer. We, we make molecules, bulk molecules, bulk ingredients. And, you know, we sell those to our customers for formulations into various kinds of products. But, you know, as I said, you know, at our core, we're a food ingredients company. So we've made superior non-caloric stevia sweeteners that uh, just taste a lot better than any other stevia offering on the market, for instance. Those are also non-GMO because they use a similar process. We make uh, a number of nutritional products, including things that have been characterized as longevity vitamins. I'm thinking specifically of something called ergothionine, which is another thing that I would encourage people to look up. Uh, we think that there's a lot of opportunity to fortify foods with that as well. We have a broad range of natural preservatives that can be used to claim no artificial ingredient labels for customers where their preservative might be the their only artificial ingredient. We can have replacements for that. And we have this whole portfolio of flavors and fragrances as well, a very large portfolio that include you know, all the great fruit flavors like peach flavors and pineapple and berries, as well as coconut, things like that. So we have a very large range of offerings that we could, that we could send to people. We have 
commercialized about 40 of these and we have a stable of hundreds that we could continue commercializing. I guess I just wanted to say as a message to any potential partners or even, you know, the end consumers that, you know, we're a very, like I say, science and health focused company. We have a mission to improve human health and happiness. That's core to our function. So everything that we do is based around those kinds of qualitative attributes. We are always looking for partners to help us bring our science to the market. Uh, in general, when I say we have a stable of hundreds of compounds, what I mean is that we have a bunch of very smart scientists that have figured out great ways to make a lot of healthy and interesting compounds. But we generally only take those to a certain level, like a proof of concept level. And so to actually stimulate the further development and commercialization, we need to attract partners. That, that's what we're looking for. And so those, those are very much open to us. So I'd encourage anyone that would have a notion to partner with us around that kind of project to reach out and contact us. And now we go to Spain to chat with Joan Bombardo, Managing Director of Ornua Ingredients Europe, about how the company rebuilt its facility in Spain after a fire, as well as how the company has been affected by and responded to the coronavirus pandemic. Ornua Ingredients Europe is part of Ornua. Obviously, we're, we're a business unit that has a forward invested processing and MPD facilities in the UK and Spain, three factories in the UK and, and one in Spain. And, and uh, we're, we're focused on supplying you know, cheese and, and dairy powders. We normally sell, obviously this year with COVID, uh, it's a bit different, but around 75,000 tons of ingredients into food service, food manufacturing, and global quick service restaurants. Recently, obviously, we're, we're now in a period, like, like everyone, not suffering the, the impact of COVID, and particularly, I suppose, in, in our sector, no, which is very exposed to food service. At the moment, obviously, we're facing the the shortfall of orders, you know, we've faced around 70% of a drop in the peak of COVID, uh, especially in the UK and Spain. So we had a huge impact on the business. But we've been focusing, I suppose, through this period, supporting our people and making sure you know, that priority the health and safety of our employees, putting all the measures in place and, and making sure we could warranty the supply of our customers. So we had more time to plan our long-term strategies and working and reviewing the strategies, you now with all the uncertainty that's come now. And, and I suppose we, we also managed to, you know, through this period, we've been supporting our colleagues in foods, especially in the UK, where uh, they supply our uh, retail customers in the UK. And as you know, the retail suffered an increase of demand. We were agile enough to convert some of our normal production into different packaging to, to be able to support our colleagues in the foods business as well. So there's been a lot going on over the, the recent weeks and months. But things, things are now improving and, and now we're, we're seeing our orders coming back, especially for some of our large partner customers. So we've gone from, in, in some cases, which are with 70% of a drop in volumes to almost back to 80% level in some cases, 90% and depending on the businesses. Are you starting to see improvements in all areas or are there still areas that are struggling a little bit? Well, it's a, it's a good question. From Ingredients Europe, we, as I said, we focused a lot in the UK and, and Spain and, and the rest of Europe, but we also export internationally and there is a different dynamics. So we can see that there's been a quicker recovery in the quick service restaurants and 
larger chains, while some of the other customers, especially again in the food service sector, are recovering, but not that quick. And also depending on the areas, for example, Latin America has been really, really slow for months, and now that seems to be recovering as well. So overall, we see a good recovery, but still some businesses, it probably will take a couple of months before and some of our customers or, or probably even we're talking about maybe a year or two even uh, in some cases to go back to pre-COVID levels. So I guess you're seeing different levels of recovery depending on location. Absolutely. That's, that's what we've seen. No, we've seen a, a completely shut down in some countries and then a quick recovery. And in other countries, it's been to a degree that the orders have dropped, but then, you know, we're not back to normal levels. And for the sectors that you work with, which ones are you seeing recovering better than others? The quick service uh, restaurants, large chains of, of restaurants across the world, that they're definitely seeing a quicker recovery and we're seeing orders coming back very quickly across all countries. We also see our manufacturing customers that may supply retailers that they have been there and, and they still remain at decent levels and where we see probably a higher impact is in more probably independent and smaller chains or you know generally that would be where we see a, a slower recovery and also again depending on the countries for some countries and some customers that do definitely the, the customers that are more doing you know home delivery then you know we, we've seen a, a quicker recovery and to an extent we, we saw a lower drop on the demand uh, while others uh, have been more impacted. As we start to slowly emerge from this are you seeing opportunities emerging as well? In, in any crisis, I suppose we, we try and stay close to our customers. That's not the first time in Ingredients Europe uh, we had a, a fire that destroyed the factory in Spain. And what we did then was stay close to our customers. And we've tried to do the same now through COVID. So, so I think for us, you know, staying close to our partner customers and making sure we're, we had all the measures to be able to warranty supply and to keep growing with them and be there for them. I think it's really appreciated for our customers and puts us in a, in a very good position. And then in terms of opportunities, we had more time to review our long-term strategies. So I think we've confirmed that our strategy is still valid and we're focusing on growing with our partner customers. We're focusing on global, on growing globally and very much focused on, as I said, cheese and dairy powders with a specific focus only on pizza cheese and, and the area of pizzas. And I suppose we keep seeing a lot of opportunities in this area. We've kept growing, improving and, and growing our um, R&D and new product development capability and adding uh, not only new people, but also, I suppose, working on, on the functionality uh, of our products. So I suppose we, we keep growing this area and not only, as I said, in Europe, but, but expanding into Latin America and Middle East and Africa. You mentioned the R&D. How has R&D been affected by COVID? Because obviously, you know, with a, a world slowdown, are you developing new products or just trying to consolidate the ones that you have? Yes, no, we, we're developing new products. We, we do a lot of customer-led R&D or, or really partnering with our customers while we work on projects. So I think the fact that our projects are not, some of them are not really short-term uh, projects, but you know, take a couple of months to develop, just we're able to keep working on those and to an extent put even a, a deeper focus on, on some of the projects we were working on. So I suppose where we struggle a bit maybe or, or where things slow down in terms of for new product development is that interaction with the customer, especially where you needed to travel or the teams needed to travel and, and you know, maybe doing market testing and so on and so forth. That has certainly slowed down. 
but a lot could be achieved by you know keep developing internally and, and sharing information remotely uh, no the, the samples process has not stopped so uh, generally speaking we've been able to keep working on our projects and, and making sure you know that we keep focusing on on the long-term plans and we stay focused on the strategy you've obviously mentioned working with your customers in the recent past that would have involved them collaborating with you in your own facilities or you going to their facilities so how has that relationship changed and how are you managing that now that you can't have that close collaboration physically yes it's a good question and actually most of our MPD projects and, and efforts are, are really linked to our partner customers so because of that we already had the capability to test in their same conditions and circumstances as some of them in our own facilities. And actually we have MPD facilities in four sites, as I said, three in the UK and one in Spain. And you know some of them, like the, the one in Spain that was just uh, revealed, the new factory uh, last year, we finalized has brand new state-of-the-art factory with new MPD capability, pilot plans, and so on and so forth. So, so we internally could do a lot of the the same testing and same requirements and the fact that we we really work together with our customers I think puts us in a good place to really understand our customer needs and and be able to work even with the challenges that COVID brought. I guess many people are concerned about a second wave or a potential second wave. I suppose that having dealt with the first wave that you're maybe in a better position to be able to deal with another one? Obviously we're all waiting to see you know what the next month will bring on the short term, we're probably, you know, like, like everyone, probably trying to understand when will all the customers recover and will, when and if the business will go back to some sort of normality. In the midterm, we're probably, you know, more concerned about how deep is going to be the crisis coming after that in, in some countries or, or I suppose, you no, know, if, if you look across Europe, Spain and the UK have been the two countries most hit by a drop of the GDP uh, with this crisis. So, how is that going to affect the consumer spend, your capability, the, the, the capacity to spend and, and buying power and, and, you know, what's going to be the dynamic on consumer spend, you know, so obviously that we'll see that. But I suppose, again, with, with a, a, a large range of customers across ingredients Europe, with a large range of products with different functionality, capability, and we're relatively well placed to keep growing with our, our customers and hopefully you know, that that next wave is not going to be as, as big as, as wave one. When we talk to our customers, we're, they're not expecting, in most cases, another big shutdown and lockdown of whole countries, you know, like the ones we, we suffered. So hopefully we expect things not to get as bad as they were. And of course, the COVID crisis is one thing, but then potentially there's the economic crisis that comes after the COVID crisis. I think you're absolutely right. And mid-long term is, is what is the economic crisis? And and, and I think we're, we're conscious of that, that that might be coming. But at the same time, because of our growth plans, you know, in, in different geographies and the pipeline that we have, we believe hopefully we'll be able to mitigate the impact of the crisis in the countries where we're probably long established. And, and hopefully we'll be able to, to leverage that through the growth uh, in other areas. And we've been talking about challenges with respect to COVID. And one of the other challenges that you mentioned in passing a little bit earlier is the fire at the factory in Avila in Spain. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about how you've recovered from that? Yes, so that's one of the challenges we had in, in 2017, big challenges that the factory in Spain was completely destroyed. So I got a call Saturday night saying, Joanne, the factory is on fire. 
and the director of operations said, don't run because there's nothing to do. So I went to the factory and, and yes, absolutely, it was, it was all burning and it all burned down. So it was a, a big challenge. We activated our, our business continuity plan and the teams around Ireland, the UK and Spain worked together really well. So we focused from day one in ensuring the business continuity of our customers and ensuring the supply to our partner customers, which we achieved. It was a great achievement because even our uh, security stock burned down and, and we never let down our partner customers, so we were able to keep supplying. At the same time, we activated the manufacturing from two of the UK sites, start manufacturing products to going to supply into, into our customers, in, in, in this case, particularly in Spain and some export outside Europe as well. And that wasn't easy, you know, that wasn't easy moving people you know, across and from technical people, uh, R&D people, uh, even factory operators that were experts on products and moved across. People spent months working, you know, away from the families. It was a huge commitment for some of the people in, in the Avila factory, huge commitment. And together with the UK team, supported obviously by Ornu as a group and, and head office, we together successfully managed to retain our customers, to secure the jobs, and to build a state-of-the-art new factory. And actually, we managed to build the factory from the first stone that was put in place. It took a year to rebuild the factory, 30 million state-of-the-art investment that can manufacture up to 70,000 tons of cheese with, as I said earlier on, new R&D capability, uh, new technology, and it sets up... Um, in a very good place to grow our, our export agenda. It's, um, you know, it, it has capabilities to really be able to export worldwide and it puts us in a very competitive place. So, so look, it was, a, it was a big challenge when we suffered the fire, but thanks to uh, you know, the effort of everyone and, and, and the huge commitment and having a company like Ornu behind, warranting all the investment, we've been able to turn that into an opportunity to keep part of our growth strategy going forward. Is that on exactly the same site as the old one? Yes, it's on the same site. You know, we, we had a lot of different considerations where to build it, but obviously the quickest way in this particular case, occasion okay, to, to, to rebuild it was to do it on the same site. The big benefit is that there's a workforce here in Avila that's been working probably average 15 years in the factory or more. So really stable workforce, uh, really uh, with a lot of know-how around the products after the fire and, and now with COVID and all that, it's just a testament, you know, of, of the great people and, and, and the great teams that we have across it and how well they, they've been able to work together, you know. It's in this crisis when, when you really value the people you work with and, and how, you know, the, the, the capability of the people and, and what people are able to achieve. It's great when you hear, you know, the feedback of the customers and how they value the efforts that people have made to make sure we keep supplying them. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. The dairy market uh, continues to be relatively stable and quiet as we come to the end of the summer holidays, uh, hoping to start to see people back in the market uh, this week. Butter in the past week has probably dropped off a bit. Cream has remained stable, trading around the 4400, uh, 44.30 level but uh, butter has dropped a bit traditionally through september october you do get a widening of the spread between butter and cream but um september butter is relatively flat around the 34.50 level quarter four was down around uh, 75 
uh, euros a ton to 34.75. Quarter one dropped from around 35.40 level um, down around 50 euros. And quarter two then was trading around 35.20 level, down about 30 euros on the week. Skimmel powder uh, was more positive on the week. Um, I guess the O'Neill tender uh, lent a bit of support to the market. September was up around 20 euros to the 21.45 level. Quarter four was up around 25 euros to the 21.90 level. And quarter one was up around uh, 35.40 euros to 22.30 level. Quarter two was also up around the same to around the 22.60 level. We remained uh, relatively unchanged also. Thanks, Liam. We'll chat again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another Dairy Dialogue podcast, the one where we mentioned Alice Cooper, who incidentally has a really good radio show on the Fox in Arizona. I wonder if he's advertising his chocolate milk at the same time, seeing as I haven't listened to that show since I can't pick it up on my car radio anymore. Scotland is kind of a long distance from Arizona, as you well know. That always reminds me of that classic line from Laurel and Hardy when the phone rings and Stan picks up the phone and says, it certainly is, and then puts the phone down. And he explains to Ollie, the other person said, it's a long distance from Atlanta, Georgia. And Stan says, it certainly is, and puts the phone down on him. I've always wanted to do that, but nobody says it's a long distance call anymore. Times have changed. But it won't be long before Dairy Dialogue number 99 next Wednesday on 9-9, 9th of September. So until next time, I hope you have a great week. Take care and stay safe. And as always, thanks for listening.